He is risen. risen Not bad, not bad. After first hour, my kids looked over and said, Dad, they're saying it wrong. And it wasn't because they weren't loud enough. It's just because uh, some of you who are regulars, you know this story. That's not the tradition of the Rodiver household. In Rodiver house on Easter morning, it's he's risen. And you can ask the kids, they'll say this first thing in their bed. They'll say, right on. And that's because, uh, you know, I shared this story that when I came to Christ later in life, I didn't have the privilege of understanding or growing up in a Christian home. So when I finally started visiting, um, I was going to say a legitimate church, a church that had its own building, because I went to a church that was in a cafeteria, uh, they had a little bit more of their traditions intact. And so I remember showing up there, and there was this older gentleman trying to make this young, long-haired, tattooed Pierce guy feel welcome. And so he did not let any of that stand between us, and he came up to me and said, He is risen, son! And I knew he, he was expecting some response, so I just said, right on, man, that's awesome. <laughs> so that is the tradition at the Rodiver home. First hour did it great. Let's see how you guys do. He is risen. Yeah, yeah doesn't that feel right? The resurrection makes things right, doesn't it? And that's what we're here to celebrate. But, but, but not just the resurrection, but principally what that has secured for those who trust in the resurrection. And so for that, we're going to look at Peter's epistle. If you have a Bible, turn open to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 5. If you need to use the Pew Bible in front of you, just turn to page 1014. Page 1014 of our Pew Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Would you all stand with me as we hear God's word being read? <clears throat> this is what Peter writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our passage this morning contains all the elements that's very appropriate to think about on Resurrection Sunday. It contains praise to God, the resurrection of Christ, and the hope that is ours as a result of both of, the, both of those. And best of all, Peter uses a term that's probably one of the most appealing terms in the New Testament. It's the word inheritance. If you, like most people, hear the word inheritance, particularly that you might stand to gain an inheritance, you're going to get excited. Uh, I mean, let's be honest. I know you don't want us to come off as materialistic or greedy, but if you find out that you have an amazing inheritance coming your way, that'll put a smile on your face, right? Peter tells us why the sound of an inheritance will make a smile. Maybe you heard it in the reading. And Peter says, according to his great mercy, God's given us new life, a living hope, an inheritance kept in heaven for you. You see, the reason an inheritance puts a smile on our face, Peter taps into it, is because an inheritance is the promise of hope the hope of something good, the hope of a blessing, maybe the hope of a financial security, the hope of somebody helping you out. Now, depending upon the inheritance, it can be any of these or all of these or even more. Inheritance also means that somebody cares for you, that somebody actually thought about you and somebody wants to care for you through that inheritance. 
When you think of it that way, we can see why Peter is, starts really this letter to, with such gratitude and praise to God because he understands inheritance brings us hope. And so we want to ask three questions about this inheritance this morning, this Easter Sunday morning from our passage. Three questions are going to be, why does God give us this inheritance? What does this inheritance mean to us? And how can, it, how can we be guaranteed that it is for us? So why do we get it? What is it? And how do we know it's ours? That's what we're going to be asking. And to be honest, to be let you know, we're going to go through the first two questions pretty quickly. We're going to get through quickly of why we get it and what it is, because I really want to spend our time talking about how do we know for sure it's ours. Now, depending upon your family situation, it probably might be reasonable that you can expect an inheritance from your parents, maybe, maybe even your grandparents. But it's certainly not reasonable for you to expect to get an inheritance from my parents, right? Um, we know intuitively that inheritance has to do with relationship. The closer, the tighter the relationship, the more there's a sense that there could be an inheritance. The further and estranged the relationship, the less of a thought that we might get an inheritance. Well, if inheritance is based on relationship, then humanity has a real problem gaining an inheritance from God. Because according to the Bible, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 10, humanity is at war with God outside of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, outside of Christ, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So outside of Christ, the relationship between humanity and God is characterized by these words, enmity and death. Not the ideal situation to stand to get an inheritance. But if you're paying attention to both those passages, Romans 5.10 and Ephesians 2.1, you'll notice that they are in the past tense. You were enemies of God. You were dead in your sins. So what happened? If that's what we used to be, if that's what we were, and that's not what we are now, what changed? Well, that's where 1 Peter 1.3, Peter says, according to his great mercy... He, being God, caused us to be made new, born again, Peter says. You see, outside of Christ, we may have been born as God's enemy, dead to the things of God, but because of what Christ has done, humanity can be reborn, not as God's enemy, but as God's heir. What Peter is saying here is that this rebirth, this change of status from an enemy to an heir is entirely an act of God's mercy. It is God's mercy. It's not your morality or your merit. It is God's great compassion, not your fantastic character. It's God's divine pity, not your stunning personality. It's all of God's mercy to humanity. And Peter says, this inheritance can be yours because of an act of God's mercy. You were his enemy, but now you are his friend. Better yet, he says, you are family. You were dead, but because of Christ, you can now be alive. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. Friends, just think for a moment how much your life would be changed if this singular truth of God's mercy displayed towards you in Christ could change you if it gripped your heart. How much easier it would be to confess your sins to God knowing that you're always going to find mercy. How much easier it would be to forgive others' sins against you knowing how much you've been a recipient of mercy. 
How richer life would be knowing that you've been shown mercy from God. How richer would the lives of people around you be when you've experienced God's mercy? Peter says, according to his mercy, according to his mercy what? He caused you to be born anew to an inheritance. Well, it's clear now why God gives us his inheritance is because of his mercy. This is one of the foundational ways God acts towards humanity. It is because of his mercy and compassion and steadfast love to us. Now we want to ask, well, what does this inheritance mean to us? That's okay, that egg will stay there after the service. You can get that later. <laughs> so we know why is God merciful to us, but why, what does his inheritance now mean to us? Peter says, this inheritance, he calls it a living hope. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope as inheritance. And then he follows it with these three amazing adjectives. You see they're right there. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What's Peter's point? That this inheritance lasts forever. This inheritance will not lose its value. It won't run out on you. It won't ruin you. And it will not leave you unsatisfied. See, the problem with earthly inheritances is eventually they run out, right? They have a finite, limited value. So they'll either run out or worse yet, an earthly inheritance can be taken from you. It can be stolen from you. Peter's saying not so this inheritance. This value, the value of this inheritance is imperishable. It can never run out or run dry. Secondly, this inheritance it's unlike an earthly inheritance because an earthly inheritance can actually ruin you. Now, you've all heard the stories of how people turn out who become too rich too quickly, right? It usually never works out well. This week I was reading on Time Online, they ran an article that says, here's how winning the lottery makes you miserable. And it talks about just three mega lottery winners. Jack Whitaker, Abraham Shakespeare, Sandra Hayes, and it documents how in th these three were representative of all kinds of lottery winners. One went crazy, died broke. The other got shot in his chest and was buried in a concrete slab in his backyard. The other lost all family and friends because everyone wanted the money from their winnings. Dan McNay, the fina a financial consultant and author of the book, Life Lessons from the Lottery, says 70% of all lottery winners lose it within a few years, and it makes their lives worse rather than better. Peter's saying, this inheritance, it's not going to ruin you. This inheritance will not corrupt you. This inheritance will not make your life go sideways at all. It will never lose its value, and it'll never corrupt or ruin you. And lastly, Peter says, this inheritance, unlike any inheritance the world can give, will be unfading. What's he mean by unfading? He's talking about things that satisfy. It'll never go, get old. It'll always be new. It'll always have that new car smell. The shine and glimmer won't go away. It'll always be as amazing as it was the first day you received it. It is unfading. See, the reality is, friends, we all know, I mean, the things of this world, they can satisfy and they can meet needs but eventually they stop satisfying us, eventually they stop meeting needs, and then we have to go on to something else. That's just the way it works. Peter's saying the inheritance we have in Christ is not that way. It absolutely satisfies. 
You kind of have to wonder if, as Peter was writing this to these churches, if he was thinking about maybe hearing this for the first time himself from what Jesus taught him. Back in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, I'll have it on the screen back here. Jesus says to these people, the disciples and many others listening, listen to the theme, it's very similar. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whoever gets this inheritance, Peter says, will have hope because this inheritance will last forever. It will not ruin you. In fact, it will always, always satisfy. Well, sign me up, right? That's the kind of inheritance I want. That's, that's something I'm looking forward to. And I'm sure Peter's original readers were thinking the same thing. Keep in mind, many of them would have been Jews. They would have thought back. The word inheritance would have triggered ideas of their own history of inheriting the land and all the security and comfort and meaning that brought. And so Peter says, you have an inheritance even better than the land. Even at your best when you inherited the land, the fruits perished. People could take it from you. But this new inheritance, it's imperishable. It's undefiled and it's unfading. And so you can imagine with anticipation, they're excited about that, then they would probably ask the same question. Well, how can we guarantee that we get that inheritance? And that's the third and final question we wanna ask of our passage as well. So we know why we get it, it's God's mercy. We know what it is, but how can we guarantee that we have it? Peter says, this is possible, it's guaranteed, notice in verse three, through the resurrection of Christ. We know for certain that we can have this inheritance because it's grounded in the finished work of Christ's resurrection. We can have this incredible, imperishable, unfading, undefiling inheritance because it's rooted in the historical work of Christ's resurrection. You see, friends, Jesus' resurrection was the vindication that his perfect life and atoning death had, in fact, conquered sin and death. Death it's a result of sin. And Christ committed no sin, therefore death had no place, had no claim on him. See, this is why Acts 2.24 says, God raised him up, ending the pains of death, speaking of Christ, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Christ had committed no sin, and sin's final payment is death, so death had no claim on Christ. One theologian wrote it this way, it's so significant, I just thought I'd say it word for word, so it's on the screen. Christian hope is ever living because Christ, the ground of that hope, is ever living. The present reality of the Christian's life is defined and determined by the reality of the past the resurrection of Christ, and is guaranteed into the future because Christ lives forevermore. Friends, that's the, the inheritance that, that Peter's saying, this is kept for you, it's waiting for you, it's guaranteed in the future because it's not so much dependent upon your present right now, it's guaranteed on the historical work of Christ in the past. And so what happened in the past gives you confidence for the future, the present and the future because it's all dependent on Christ and his resurrection. Friends, think about this. The resurrection of Christ is the most astounding fact of history. I mean, this is the game changer. If Jesus was raised from the dead, 
If Jesus was actually raised from the dead, then there is no justification for Christianity that's necessary. I mean, that's it. That's the end game. That's the mic drop. If Jesus rose from the grave, no justification for Christianity is necessary. We're done. That's it. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, no justification for Christianity is going to be adequate. Get that? If he rose from the dead, we don't need to justify this. If he didn't rise from the dead, we cannot justify this. It all balances on this critical question. Did Jesus Christ rise from the grave? That's the question that matters. That's the issue at hand. Right? We live in a, a cultural time where it's cool to be spiritual, but just not religious. Right? So what happens is people will pick and choose from the various religious systems, things that they're comfortable with. A little bit of maybe Eastern mysticism here, a little bit of what Buddha has there, a little bit of the Quran here, and some teachings from Jesus there. They'll look at the New Testament and go, well, I like this teaching of Christianity, but I don't like that teaching of Christianity, so I'm going to take what I like and, and put it all together to what I'm comfortable with. That's the wrong way to go about this. The issue is not what we like or don't like. The issue at hand is did he rise from the dead? If Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept everything he says. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you don't have to accept anything he says. He's just another itinerant preacher, maybe a miracle worker at best, had some cool proverbs, but that's it. He's like everyone else in history. But if he rose from the dead, you have to accept everything he said. Because who does that? Who's ever done that? Only he. But if he didn't rise from the dead, you don't have to accept anything he says. See, it all comes back down to the question. Whether you like the teachings or not, whether you like certain sections or not, it's did he rise from the dead? That's the critical question. And that's why as a Christian, it's so important that we understand the historicity of our faith. Because what we celebrate is rooted in history. And if you, like me, were not raised in a Christian household, maybe some of the things I share with you now can help you build your confidence in the reality of the resurrection that's helped me over the years as I've been growing as a Christian. So I know there's a lot of them that we can offer here, but I just want to offer about four of of things we have to wrestle with if the resurrection is not true. And here they are. Number one, the empty tomb and views of immortality. Notice with the, if you would, when you read the New Testament, the New Testament writers are always throwing in bits of history in the narratives. And that's because they're not simply writing a story, they're accounting history. So the early Christians, the early disciples knew exactly where Jesus was buried because they knew exactly whose tomb he was buried in. Notice all four Gospels mention the name of Joseph of Arimathea. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, they make a particular note that Joseph was a member of the council, which was referred to the Sanhedrin, which was, uh, you could say, kind of like the Supreme Court of Israel. And there are only 71 members of the Sanhedrin. The reason they mention that Joseph was a part of this group was that any reader of the gospel of Matthew or Mark, if they had any doubts of the historicity, it's pretty easy to figure out if Joseph was real because you got 71 people, 71 people on that bench, so to speak. And they could find out if Joseph, in fact, was real or not pretty quick. And if they found out and talked to Joseph, they could ask Joseph, did you actually talk to Pontius and ask for the body of Jesus? So Matthew and Mark note Joseph's identity and role in the society so people could verify it. And no other accounts have been arisen, have come up disputing that Joseph asked for the body of Jesus. If the tomb 
wasn't empty and Jesus' body still lay in it, both Rome and the nation of Israel had every motivation to just simply drag out the bloodied, battered corpse and display it for everyone and put a stop immediately to this kind of civil unrest that this new gospel message was causing. And they had the motivation to stop it. All they had to do was pull the body out, but no body was ever discovered, ever. Now, some people have said, well, that's because the disciples snuck into the tomb, overpowered these Roman centurions, rolled back this two-ton stone, and stole the body out while nobody saw it or something. All right, that's some people do say that. But the problem with that is, number one, just read the Gospels, right? The disciples at this time were not very courageous gentlemen. Right? They denied Jesus. They ran away. Very few were even there at the crucifixion. It was the women. The men were nowhere to be found. They all of a sudden would not have screwed up the courage to overpower Roman armies and, and steal the body. It just doesn't make sense. Secondly, in Matthew 27, verses 63 to 66, the Romans had dispatched a cohort of guards to guard the tomb to prevent this exact scenario. The Jewish leaders remembered that Jesus talked about rising from the grave. Just in case to be safe, they asked for guards to be posted to prevent the disciples stealing the body and saying that he rose from the grave. Furthermore, in Matthew 28, verse 11 through 15, the same guards who were posted to watch the tomb, who witnessed the resurrection, were paid hush money to keep it quiet, and to disperse the story that while they slept, the disciples did in fact steal the body and took it. The problem with that is, if you know anything about Roman military, if the soldiers were anything, they were disciplined. To fall asleep on your watch was punishable by death. There's no way these people would have believed the story that these Roman centurions fell asleep. But that's the story they disseminated. Now, someone could be saying, well, see, they, they wrote that in the narrative. Why, so the question is, why would the, the authors of the Gospels put that into the Gospel message and sow the seeds of doubt on their own resurrection story? And some people might say, well, that's because they were being pretty savvy about this. They were raising a possible counter-argument, dispelling it. That way they, had, they took out the, the motivation of the argument. You do that all the time in debates, that you raise an objection and you deal with the objection before they even can talk about it, and so your argument looks stronger. Well, that's true. Assuming they were, you know, in Hawaii we say, Akamai, that's smart. If the disciples were really that smart and shaping the contours of this story. But the problem then is, why in all four gospel narratives is it women who are the witnesses to the resurrection? You go, what's the big deal with that? Right? Well, in the first century, this is so bad, but women were not valued at all. Right? Not at all. They were in no way considered the equals of men, so much so that in legal proceedings, a woman could not give testimony because there is no legal weight put to her words because women were considered unreliable. So if the disciples were crafting this sneaky story to, de to defeat other arguments, why are they so sloppy to make four of the gospels say it was women who first witnessed the resurrection? It doesn't add up. Unless, of course, that's exactly how it happened and they're just recounting history. So second problem, so you have the empty tomb, no body ever presented, no, no, no conclusions on that. A second problem was the view of immortality at the time. 
So no Jew, excuse me, no Greek or nor Roman or Jew actually would have considered the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be either desirable or even possible. So the question you have to ask is why did they even bother making it up if in fact it was made up? So we think of physical immortality as a good thing, right? Uh, a lot of times you think about, well, I don't want to be in heaven if that means I'm just a spirit like Casper floating on a cloud, playing a harp or whatever. We like the physical world. That's what we think eternal life should be. But that was not the view of the first century world at all. They did not view the physical world as a pleasant existence, and they did not view eternal life as being physical. As a matter of fact, the freedoms that death brought you was to be freed from the shackles of the physical life. Why is that? Keep in mind, friends, this is the first century. Life may be good for us now in the 21st century. The physical life might be pretty good. But back in the first century, life, physical life was hard. It was agony and a lot of suffering and toil and labor. If you had a toothache, if you had a cavity, you had one of two choices. Live with the cavity or yank out the tooth. Either way, that's a lot of suffering. If you threw out your back, no Advil, no uh, heating pad in the microwave, no hot shower to loosen the muscles, none of that. You just slipped your disc, dealt with the pain, and walked like a hunchback. The physical world in the first century was full of suffering and agony and pain. To come back physically from the grave would have seemed like a cruel joke of the gods, not a hope for eternal life. So to the first century view, a physical resurrection was not even desirable. So why would they talk about it? To the Jews, furthermore, like skeptics today, they would not have believed that Jesus would have physically resurrected from the dead, but for very different reasons. You see, today a skeptic might say, look, I just don't think miracles like that are possible. The Jews would have thought a miracle like this was not permissible. You see, because today, well, then as well as today, the Jews believe that there will be a physical resurrection of all God's people. They believe in a physical resurrection, but at the end of all the ages, what point would it be to have one single Jewish man physically resurrected from the dead? It doesn't mean it. It doesn't signify anything. It would be completely pointless. That's not how it works out in God's system. Here's the, I'm trying to paint, the, the picture I'm trying to paint, friends. Our place in time colors the way we look back on history. When we hear the gospel story, we think the preaching of a physical resurrection was the natural thing they should do because everyone would have accepted it. And we don't realize that a physical resurrection would have been just as ludicrous to them as it is to skeptics today, but for very different reasons. If Christianity was a fabrication, if Christianity was just wish fulfillment, somebody made this up, there's no logical reason to include in it a resurrection narrative, let alone make it the central tenet of your faith. There's no logical reason the Christians should have created a resurrection narrative if they had hoped for people to buy into this system because it was ludicrous, it was unheard of and not even desirable unless there was an actual physical resurrection and the early Christians could not do anything but testify that this was happening regardless of what people in their culture would have responded to them about. So the empty tune and the view of immortality is a reason to say, hey, if there wasn't a resurrection, how do you explain these things? Secondly, 
the radical transformation of the disciples and the creation of the church. Okay, so here we are, AD 30. You probably have, if you're reading the gospel narratives, a uh, hundred or so, 120 discipler, disciples and followers of Christ at the time. And there's nothing that approximate Christianity. To put this in perspective, in Palestine, that had about four million population, you're talking about Christians to non-Christians, one to 33,000. And then almost overnight, thousands and thousands of Jews have become converts. Overnight, according to Acts chapter two, Acts chapter five, overnight, thousands are becoming converts. Within a couple of years, there isn't an area in the Middle East that does not have a Christian community. Within a couple of decades, there isn't a place in the Middle East, North Africa, or large parts of Europe that doesn't have a Christian community. What in the world? How do you explain this massive sociological phenomena without a resurrection? Let me give you just one illustration. Uh, Josephus, he's a Jewish historian. He recounts for us in his histories that Jesus' half-brother James died as a martyr for faith in his brother. But here's the thing, in the gospel narratives, James doesn't even believe his brother Jesus is the son of God. John chapter seven, verse five, Mark three twenty-one. James actually opposes his brother. So what happened? What happened to make this devout Jew believe and die believing his brother was the son of God? What accounts for this radical transformation? Third point, kind of related to the second one, is this explosion of a new worldview and social structures. Keep in mind, when the church was birthed, primarily for the first several years, it was almost exclusively Jewish. What accounts for the fact that these Jews had abandoned or completely modified some of the fundamentals of Jewish identity, worldview, and thought? And here's just a few of them. So the sacrificial system, if you were a Jew, this is how you were made right with God. This is what made things go. Thousands of them just walk away from it. The Torah, they no longer see the Torah as a means to be in part of the covenant community. They now see the Torah, the law, as an expression of God's character and a blessing from him to us. More particularly, the Sabbath and the kosher laws. They stop meeting on Sabbath, they start meeting on Sundays. They stop eating kosher. Thousands of Jews enjoying bacon. What in the world, right? <laughs> Here's another one, Trinitarian monotheism. Never before heard in, in ancient history. That there is one God, and there's three persons in this one being, this being God. He's one, but three, Trinitarian monotheism. From a group of people who literally gave their lives for, for monotheistic theology. Thousands of them now purporting a Trinitarian monotheism. And then finally, this is another one, the redefinition of Messiah. It goes from an understanding that the Messiah is a political, physical conqueror to the spiritual redeemer over sin and more than just Rome for all humanity, not just the Jews. Friends, these are some radical worldview social structure changes. Worldview change takes time. As we know, racial identities run deep. What accounts for thousands of Jews in mass, abandoning them so quickly and comprehensively if there's no resurrection. Last one, the physical appearances. We see this in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus appeared to the women in Matthew 28. Jesus appeared to the disciples. He appeared to James and Peter, and then all the disciples. Then in 1 Corinthians 15, he appears to 500 people at one time. 
And when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, the implication is that the readers may not believe him, so he lists the names and says, many of them are still with us to this day. So if you don't believe Jesus came back, go talk to them. They saw it happen. Friends, how do you account for all of these changes? And there's more, but we only have time for these four if the resurrection didn't happen. So it's not as easy as simply saying, I don't believe in the resurrection, as if that were a good end all to some kind of argument. Now, you, you, can see, you can say you don't believe in the resurrection, right? Everyone's entitled to their own opinion. But what you're not entitled to is your own facts. And if you want to be a responsible, thinking, reasonable person, how do you account for all of these historical changes, all these historical questions that have to be answered if there was no physical resurrection? You cannot simply say, I choose to not believe it, and ignore the historical changes that took place that have affected the world since then, 2,000 years ago. That option's not available to us. Now, someone might say, yeah, but here's the biggest problem to everything you're saying this morning. All of that assumes that the biblical records about the resurrection are, in fact, historical. Yeah, I could see why people would say that. To be clear, this is not my assumption right now. This is the assumption of the entirely scholarly community. I'm going to unpack this. I want you to, be very, if you, I want you to dial in here because I want to represent uh, our opponents clearly. This is not just my assumption that these are historical documents. This is the assumption of the entire scholarly community. Not just the conservative ones that will agree with us and come to church, but the ones who don't agree with us and may or may not come to church. This is the consensus of even those scholars who say many portions of the New Testament are actually not genuine. So of Paul's 13 letters, only six of them they would say are authentic. So I'm, I'm talking about them as well. And they would all tell you that the resurrection accounts that we have in the New Testament are actually authentic. Now, this is where I need you to dial in. I want to represent them clearly. To be clear, they're not saying that they agree when they read 1 Corinthians 15 and Galatians. They go, oh yeah, Jesus, he came back from the dead. I believe, hallelujah, I'm going to church. That's not what I'm saying they're saying. I'm just saying that they're saying that those texts are actually authentically written by these men, and these men are recording what they think is going on. Is that clear? Does that make the distinction? So they're not believing the resurrection, but they are saying, no, 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 this is actually Paul writing this, and no, this is actually James. He wrote that. I think he's crazy, because he's writing about a resurrection, but he actually wrote about a resurrection. So the point is, the scholars don't believe it, but the people they're saying wrote this down did. And that's the thing that's important. Within a matter of months of Jesus' death, all these people were proclaiming a physical resurrection. And believe you me, they, these scholars admit Jesus lived. As a matter of fact, um, John Dominic Cross, and he teaches over at Claremont McKenna, right up the street, well, in Claremont, he says this in his book, Killing Jesus, or Who Killed Jesus? Jesus' death, and that's John, he, he, he is one of the most critical scholars of the New Testament. He thinks a lot of it is just symbol, sim, symbols and, and metaphor and made up. Um, very bright man, nice man, but this is what he says. Jesus' death by execution under Pontius Pilate is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Why I share that up there? What I'm saying is that even critical scholars agree that Jesus of Nazareth lived and died under Pontius Pilate. 
and they are saying that his disciples, within months of his execution, started proclaiming a resurrection narrative. Now, these critical scholars don't believe it, but they don't have to. The people who wrote it did. And unless you can answer all these questions about where did this new worldview come from, how did this massive change in Judaism take place, what about the empty tomb, unless you can provide solid answers for that, you cannot discount the resurrection. Peter says, we know this inheritance, this amazing inheritance is ours because it's as rock solid guaranteed to you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And friends, that's what we celebrate today. We are celebrating Easter, that he rose from the dead. We celebrate that, but we celebrate that because it was a means to an end so that we could have this inheritance, undefiled, imperishable, unfading, given to us because God is merciful. And we can trust this and have confidence in it because of the thing we celebrate today, that Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the faith we have is not mere wish fulfillment, that the faith we have has teeth. It is rooted in the ground and the dirt of Galilee and Jerusalem. The faith that we have reaches back into history and helps us understand where our future is going to be. More importantly, as what Peter talks about, our faith rooted in history guarantees an eternity. Lord, I pray that there is no one in this room that does not walk away knowing that he or she has this inheritance. Father, this inheritance of value that will never fade, Lord. It will never corrupt or ruin us, Lord. We'll always be amazed at it. Father, this inheritance of the living hope that is eternal life. Father, we thank you for making this possible. We thank you that we can spend just one day out of the year remembering and celebrating the reality that a man came back from the grave. That man is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you did all this for your glory and our good. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.